0: Section 27 of Roman History, The Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18 The Moral Standard of the Age. If we think only of the most familiar of the social features of this period, we may well form a low estimate of its moral worth, and say with Horace that the men of his day were worse than the generation that had gone before and were to be followed by an age still viler. The fearful spectacles of vice seated in high places with the Caesars, the somber pages in which Tacitus portrays the selfish, cowardly, and luxurious nobles vying with each other in their praises of the rulers who were slaughtering them meantime as sheep, the passionate invectives of Juvenal, which imply that modesty and truth and honor had winged their flight to other worlds, and left the Roman in disgust to men without dignity and women without shame, the epigrams of Marshall which reveal the gross profligacy of the social circles which they were written to amuse, the novels of Petronius and Apuleius reflecting the lewdness and the baseness of every class in turn, and weightiest witness of them all, the terrible indictment of the heathen world in the letters of St. Paul." These and other literary evidences are often thought enough to prove a moral decline in the early ages of the empire. They may be also thought to show the demoralizing influence of despotism on men who in early days would have spent their lives in the public service, but who, losing their self-respect when freedom failed, turned to material pleasures to fill the void which politics had left. But before we accept such sweeping charges, there are some pleas that may be urged and should be weighed in favor of a somewhat different conclusion. Satire can never be accepted as a fair portraiture of social manners. It dwells only on the bad side of life and ignores the brighter and the nobler scenes. It may be, though it rarely is, accurate and exact in what it says, But good and evil are so blended in our motives, thoughts, and actions, that the pen which draws only the evil out to view must needs distort and falsify all the complexities of our human life. Or if it tries, as it sometimes does, to paint the fairer scenes as a contrast to the darker, it isolates and overcolors and so destroys the naturalness of both alike, as when the Roman writers found a foil for the vices of the city in the healthy simplicity of country life, of ancient manners, or of barbarous peoples. But satire may be taken to show a more searching spirit of inquiry, a keener sense of the follies and vices of the age, a social unrest and discontent which point to a higher moral standard and may be the prelude to reform. Juvenal himself, from whom our popular estimate is mostly taken, was too vehement to be accurate and fair. Soured seemingly by neglect and disappointment, struggling with poverty, though conscious of high talents, he fiercely declaims against the world that could not recognize his merits, and he is not very careful of justice or consistency. Each public scandal of the times, the profligate woman, the lewd paramour, the insolent upstart, the wealthy rogue, the pampered favorite of fortune, become at once the types of classes, and are so generalized as to cover almost all the society of Rome. Nor must it be forgotten that most of the literary evidences before us, satirists, historians, and moralists alike, reflect the life of a great city, and tell us little of the average morality of the Roman world. It was in that city that the Caesars paraded visibly the foul examples of their insolent license, and the temper of the court gave the tone to the social fashions of the capital. It was there that degradation entered into the soul of the high born, and drove them to forget the cares and shame of public life in the refinements of mere self indulgence. It was there that the great extremes of poverty and wealth lived side by side. With the least sense of mutual duty and mutual respect. The great fortunes of the world came to the centre of fashion to be spent, while the proletariat lived upon its public pittance or scrambled for their patron's dole. It was there that the old moral safeguards of local religion, public sentiment, and national feeling had been most completely broken down in a motley aggregate of people to which every race had sent its quota. It was there that slavery reacted with most fatal force upon the temper of the master, and through the multitude of freedmen, stamped upon the city populace the characteristic vices of the slave. In such a capital, there was no lack of material for satire, and earnest minds were justified, perhaps, in thinking that the inhabitants of Rome had never been so idle, dissolute, and corrupt. Politics had dwindled to the scandals of court gossip, and the sterner game of war with its hardy virtues and its self-denial, had passed into the hands of provincials far away. The craving for fierce excitement might be sated by the sport with the wild beasts, and the poor gladiators might fight and bleed to show the Romans how their forefathers had died. But there was much in the life of the great city that was exceptionally morbid, and we surely must be careful before we generalize what we read about it. The satirists of the empire dwell with a special force upon the increase of luxury in their time, and the spread of peace and of material ease caused without doubt a larger outlay on all sides. But the luxuries of one age seem the necessities of the next. Civilized progress consists largely in changing and multiplying our common wants, the moral estimate of which varies with the standard of the times. If the animal nature is not pampered at the expense of the moral character and high thought, if the few do not unproductively consume the produce of the work of thousands, the moralist need not quarrel with the enlargement of our human needs, which of itself becomes a spur to quickened industry. But some of the complaints in question deal with matters of passing sentiment and prejudice— with entirely conventional habits of dress and food and furniture, and their strictures on these points sound meaningless to modern ears. Even the things we look upon as the real gains of progress, such as the interchange of natural products, the suiting to fresh soils and climates the growth of widely different lands, they stigmatized as the vanity of an insane ambition that would overleap the bounds of nature. Much of what seemed to them luxurious excess would be now taken as a matter of course, and was only thought extravagant because of the simpler habits of a southern race, which had a lower standard for its wants. If we go into details, there is little that exceeds or even rivals the expenditure of later times, unless perhaps we may accept the prices given for works of fine art, or the passion for building, which for a time seized the Roman nobles or eccentricities of morbid fancy, as rare as they were portentous. Wealth was confined indeed within few hands, but in the towns at least they spent largely for what they thought the common good, and baths and aqueducts, roads and temples were works to benefit the million. Culpable luxury indeed there was, selfish extravagance and idle waste, but every age has seen the same in all the great cities of the world it is fair also to remember that the first century of the empire had not passed away before a change is noticed for the better. We read in Tacitus that Vespasian's frugal habits had a lasting influence on the tone of Roman fashion. From his days he dates the spread of homelier ways, in which men follow the example of the court, while the provincials, from whom the senate was largely recruited at the time, Brought to the capital the inexpensive forms of simpler life. With these reserves, we may accept the statements of the ancient writers for some at least of the social features of imperial Rome, for the vices and the follies which they paint in such dark colours. But there is another side to be considered before a conclusion can be drawn. Philosophy had now become, for the first time in Roman history, A real power in common life, and where Christian influences were unknown, it was the chief moral teacher of mankind. With Cicero, it had given an uncertain sound, as if to excuse his own irresolute temper. It had furnished questions of interest for curious scholars, but no guiding star for earnest seekers. But in the mouths of the great teachers of the Stoic system, it was very resolute and stern. It pointed to a higher standard than the will of any living Caesar. It taught men to live with self respect and to face death with calm composure. It had dropped its airs of paradox and the subtleties of nice disputes to become intensely practical and moral, to lead men in the path of duty and give them light in hours of darkness. It is easy enough to point to the inconsistencies of a career like that of Seneca to the moralist defending the worst act of his royal pupil, to the rich man writing specious phrases in favor of homely poverty, to the ascetic training of the hard palate amid all the splendors of the palace, like the hair-shirt of the Middle Ages covered by the prelate's robe. But Seneca found strength and solace in the lessons of philosophy. The greatness of his life begins when honors and court favor fail him, and he retires to meditate on the real goods of life and the great principles of duty. There, with a little company of chosen spirits, he can consult the books of the undying dead, and tranquilly reason on the experience of the past and the problems of man's destiny. Not content with the mere selfish object of saving his own soul, he gives his ear and earnest thoughts to the needs of other seekers round him, writes as the director of their conscience while they live still in the busy world, and tells them how to keep a brave and quiet heart among the trials of those evil days. The pages in which Tacitus describes the last hours of Seneca, and many another deathbed scene, the marked way in which he comments on the worldly levity of Petronius, who had no sage near him when he died, the jealous suspicions of the emperors, the writings of the moralists themselves, Show that philosophy was a real power in the state and not confined to a few thinkers. Nor was it at Rome, as in the old days of Greece, a babel of discordant voices distracting serious inquirers by their disputes and contradictions. The Stoic system ruled at Rome for a time almost without a rival. The themes on which it reasoned were chiefly moral, and hard and cold as we may think its teaching. It roused enthusiasm in those who heard it, and spread widely through the world. It had its spiritual advisers for the closets of the great, its public lecturers for the middle classes of the towns, its ardent missionaries who spread the creed among the masses, and preached in season and out of season too. Its popularity was a real sign of moral progress, for all its influence was exerted to counteract the real evils of the times. It placed its ideals of the wise and good far above the example of the Caesars, its thoughts of a ruling providence above the deified despots of an official worship. It met the gross materialism of a luxurious age by its lessons of hardihood and self-restraint. It made light of the accidents of nationality and rank, insisting chiefly on the rights of conscience and the dignity of manhood, And left us works that are of interest still in a literature in which the two most familiar names are one of an emperor and the other of a slave. To correspond to influences such as these, we may trace some changes in the tone of public thought. For foul and base as was so much in that old heathen world, which seemed to Christian eyes so hopelessly corrupt, yet were there elements of progress and earnest cries for clearer light and a feeling after better things, for God had not left himself without a witness in the midst of sensuality and sin. In regard to slavery, men speak and act with far more of real humanity. We need not insist, indeed, upon the passionate terms in which Juvenal brands the brutality of selfish masters and pleads for the human rights of the poor sufferers, nor on the language in which the kindly-hearted Pliny speaks of the members of his household. But even at the beginning of the empire, it became a growing custom to give freedom soon to the domestic slaves, and the fashion spread so fast as to require to be checked and ruled by law. The wording of the epitaphs, the common literary tone, shows the rapid growth of kindlier feeling, and the enforcement of the stern old law by which the slaves of a murdered master were all condemned to death caused a cry of horror through the city and the fear of a rescue from the crowd. Other suffering causes found a voice also in Roman circles. Protests were heard against the cruel sports of the arena and the demoralizing sight of needless bloodshed. The wrongs of the provincials were pleaded, not as a matter of prudence or of party politics, as by the orders of the republic, but in the interests of humanity and order. The estimate of women's character was changing also. They had always indeed been treated with high regard and had managed their households with dignity and self-respect. They had been clothed with public functions as priestesses and vestal virgins, and had already gained by forms of law a kind of independent status. But the received type was somewhat severe and stern, with little of the grace and accomplishment of finer culture. To stay at home to spin the wool— was their merit in their husbands' eyes, and in the later years of the Republic moralists spoke with grave alarm of the gayer moods and freer tone imported with the latest fashions, and feared to see their wives copy the questionable society of Greece. Without doubt there were many who, like the Sempronia and the Claudia of the days of Cicero, aimed more at attractiveness than virtue, and too wantonly paraded their freedom from old-fashioned notions. There were many in the early empire who flung themselves without reserve into every kind of dissipation and linked their names to infamy in the revels of the court of Nero. But it was found in time that grace and art need be no bar to chase decorum, that women could be learned without being pedants and study philosophy without affectation. At no time do we read of nobler women than in the days when satire handled them so coarsely. And sad as are the histories of Tacitus, he has yet bright and stirring pages where he embalms the memory of a band of heroines who could sympathize with their husbands' highest thoughts and sometimes even show them how to die. In earlier days, there had been Roman matrons as dignified and chaste and brave, but the fuller blossoming of womanhood and a more many sided grace were the growth of an age which we regard at the first as hopelessly corrupt and vile. In fine, there is one witness we may cross-examine if we will gauge the moral temper of the times. The younger Pliny lived partly in the period before us and partly also in the next. He was no professional moralist and had no thesis to maintain, but his familiar letters reflect the spirit of the circles in which he moved, of the highest society in Rome. He owns, indeed, that he takes a kindly view of things about him, that he sees the merits rather than the foibles of his friends, and the habit of drawing room recitals tended perhaps, with certain classes, to form a tone of mutual admiration. Yet withal, it is a most impressive contrast to the pictures of the satirist, and points to a real progress in the temper of the age, the society that could furnish so many worthy types of character, so many friends to sympathize with the genial refinement, the courtesy and tenderness expressed in Pliny's letters— had many an element of nobleness and strength to retard the process of decay. End of Section 27